Welcome to the Digital Workplace Podcast. These are conversations with CEOs of digital companies, thought leaders, and solution providers about how you can become a level five digital workplace. For the show notes and transcript of this episode, go to thedigitalworkplace.com. Welcome back to the Digital Workplace Podcast. Today, our guest is Dana Brownlee. She is the president of Professionalism Matters and the author of Managing Up. Hey, Dana, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Very excited to talk to you on this lovely day that we're having. First, before we get too far into our discussion, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, managing up and all the different ramifications of that. But I want to start off with a test to make sure you are a certified human. Your question (laughs) today is, what is a hobby that you would like to start or get back into? Let's see. Get back into... um... You know, I think maybe reading real books, (laughs) like I'm on Audible all the time. I get through like one to two a week, but I cannot remember the last time I physically picked up a book. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes. So that sounds very romantic to me. I might want to get back into that. I love it. I tend to have like multiple things going. I have like my situation for audiobooks and then I have my situation for eBooks and then for real books. It's all like scattered around. Right. Well, at least you're diversified. I need to get back to (laughs) diversification in my reading. Yeah. Well, introduce yourself a little bit to our audience here. You write a lot. You do a lot of training. You have a book out, but but tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. Well, um, I just turned 50. So my intro is, seems like it's getting longer and longer. I'm officially (laughs) old, I think at this point, but um, I've had an interesting circuitous career. I started as a management consultant after some years in corporate. And I started a training company about 20 years ago. And so mostly I provide training and speaking on a range of topics like leadership skills, project management. I'm also a senior contributor with Forbes Careers. So I'm writing on a range of careers topics. And one of my recent passions is around workplace anti-racism. And so I have a few courses that are out. Well, one is out on LinkedIn learning about collaboration, and then I have two more coming out in the next um, few days, actually, and weeks about workplace anti-racism. Wow. So there's so many ways we're going to take this discussion. I just want to start off saying I've, as you mentioned, I listened to your book, Managing Up, and you are the real deal, man. You, you have a lot of great insights and like all the examples that you put in your book. They're not like fluffy examples you just came up with. Like those came from real <laughs> situations. I loved it. Right. Right. I try my best because, you know, when I get in front of groups, I'm like, look, this is like an hour of your life. You'll never get back. So the last thing I want is you to go back and feel like, oh, I was all revved up, but I still don't know how to handle the same problem. So I try to be as practical as I can. Well, let's start with managing up and then we'll move away forward from there. So tell us why you wrote managing up and what you're hoping people do with it. It's somewhat interesting story, at least to me, in terms of why I wrote it. I mentioned before that I tend to speak on a range of topics. So one of the things that I started noticing was no matter what the topic was, I might be talking about communication skills to one group or project management skills or accountability issues. Invariably, one of the first questions I would always get when I got to Q&A was, but what if the problem is my boss? Mm. It's kind of like that stuff all sounds great, but how do you handle it when it's a senior leader or your customer, your client or your boss? You know, it's kind of like layering hierarchy onto it because it really does change things. And so then I was like, you know, I think there's something here. Mm -hmm. And that really was my impetus. I actually wrote a white paper um, 
for PMI in 2010 called the Project Manager's Guide to Dealing with the Difficult Sponsor or the Difficult mm. Client. And so that was probably the first time I officially started writing on the topic. And then I said, you know, I really need to pull together some real content based on my project management days. Because as a project manager, you've got to satisfy everybody. You've got yeah. all these different stakeholders and everybody wants something different. So that really was the impetus for me. It's fantastic. There's just so many great insights in the book that it comes through. So I would recommend everyone check it out. But I want to specifically ask you, you know, you wrote that book a couple of years ago. What's changed now that the whole world is digital? Now all of our interactions with bosses, if they're good or bad or somewhere in between, they're, most of those interactions are digital. What are the rules now and how have they changed for people who are in a digital space trying to manage up? Yeah, if anything, I think managing up has just gotten more important Mm. because managing up is all about kind of making your boss's job easier, you know, taking things off their plate. And so now with the pandemic and the economy and just all these things, um, it's, it's become harder. And let's face it, a lot of our bosses, maybe we're struggling with technology a little bit. And so that became a challenge and an issue. And so they really did need people to step up and not need so much handholding. But beyond that, you know, really, really value that managing up. And then the other element I think is with all of us working remotely, you have so much less visibility. So you're not in front of those decision makers. You're not able to network as much or have that, those hallway chats or that elevator ride where you bump into somebody that, you know, is great that you got a chance to kind of um, meet them again or, you know, sustain that relationship. And so now managing up, I think just becomes more important because it becomes a tool for you to distinguish yourself and for you to make yourself, uh, unforgettable and indispensable. And so I think that, you know, particularly in our economy, it's it's become more important. Yeah, and I definitely agree with you. I think it is more of a challenge, but it's more important than ever before. Sure. We're often talking to managers about how to keep their teams engaged, keep things going on. But even for people on those teams and, and people who are leading projects, working with sponsors, working with bosses, to keep them informed and educated and just to communicate is, is so much more important than it ever was. Because if you don't see something for a week, you don't see an update on it, it's hard to know what's going on. Right. And then you're just kind of left out in the dark and, and no one knows what's going on in that way. So I think this is a, a new skill set that people need to bring about being in front of people probably more often than you're comfortable with. Maybe even like bragging on yourself. We, we might have said in the old days, but now it's just kind of telling people what's going on and keeping them informed. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, again, it's about making your boss's job easier, communicating in a way that's more convenient for them. So, yeah, you might love video calls, but maybe they really prefer if you just call them on their phone, you know, just kind of doing that additional legwork to figure out what makes life easiest for them. So, again, everyone check out the book. There's so many like really like so artful responses that you gave in terms of how to handle the different types of bosses. I love the different types of bosses. They're so real and everyone can resonate with those ideas. Let's shift a little bit and talk about particularly some of the considerations that black and brown employees will have as they manage up because we don't assume that everyone's going to have the same experience in this. So what have you found in your work that makes it more difficult for people from black and brown communities? Yeah. And I think much of it is the same, obviously. I mean, we're all people, um, we're all human beings. But the reality is for black and brown people, just as with a lot of other things, unfortunately, things can be more difficult. Um, So I think that 
you know, if you think about visibility is an issue, you know, a lot of us are going into this hybrid team environment where some people are going to be in the office, some people are going to be home. And it almost kind of creates this commute or information haves and have nots. Um, And so it almost kind of creates this communication um, hierarchy, communication caste system, if you will. Mm. And so you kind of don't want to be at the bottom of the caste system. And so I think that where our environment is creating another level of complexity where it's easier for those people who are remote, those people who aren't seen to kind of fall into the background Mm -hmm. and for us to kind of forget about them and forget about their contributions. I think that if you have any sort of othering effect, if you're, you know, black and brown or um, for whatever reason, not part of the dominant culture, then I think that you're more likely to become even more invisible. And so that's why, again, for those particular communities, it's so important to stay front of mind. Um, it is so important to maybe pick a day, I, you know, coach people say, you know, maybe every other Friday, make that you have a networking block, you know, mm. from 12 to 1.30. And that is your time that you have written down in your calendar to be sure that you get in front of certain people or that you build some new relationships um, because you can't kind of rest on your laurels and just assume that it's going to work out by osmosis. And so I think that's one of the ways in particular for those black and brown communities that it's something that they need to be really cognizant of. The other thing I'll say just quickly is one of the mistakes that people make with managing up since we're thinking about taking things off your boss's plate or volunteering to take lead on certain things, for example, be, you know, really take the cues in terms of how that's received. Because I like to say managing up is not taking over. You know, a, a great way to blow up your career is to come across as if you're trying to take over, you're trying to do your boss's job, you're trying to tell your boss what to do. So right. no, 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 we're not necessarily saying that. But I think that where black and black and brown uh, employees sometimes have a disadvantage is sometimes we don't have uh, as many of those relationships or we don't have the stronger relationship network. And so it can become easier for people to misinterpret what our intention was or misinterpret tone, et cetera. So again, those are just some of the other elements that I think can come into play, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. We had a, a guest on before, Kelly Jones, who who made me aware of kind of like what you said at the start, that these are people issues. This is not just a race issue in terms of, of yeah. managing, but at the same time, I get up and start my day and my main role is, okay, I got this big project I need to get through. I need something else. Whereas somebody from a disadvantaged or a, a community that that is black and brown that has been historically oppressed also has to get over. First, they have to get over the hump of, do I be- even belong here? Do it, does the society want me here? And then they have to also do the project on top of that. Yeah, natural biases. And I just yeah. think, you know, if you look at the numbers, we all know how important relationships are in terms of careers, how, you know, relationships are everything. And you tend to build and sustain relationships with people who look like you and people who have more in common with you. And so to the extent that white men historically have been at the top of the food chain and tend to wield a lot of power, you know, I mean, just being completely, you know, keeping it 100. When I pick up my cell phone and start scrolling through, you know, my personal friends, are a lot of white men in there, you know, just aren't. And that's not a bad thing, a good thing. It just kind of is what it is. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of times for us, we're ending up having to make a lot of effort because when we look at our social circles, when we look at, you know, where we're hanging out on the weekends, um, a lot of times we just don't tend to have as many of those close 
natural organic relationships with people who are in those positions of power. Well, tell me a little bit about code switching then, because when people get into those situations, there's like a certain, and we'll just just start in the office, there's a certain, we'll say, etiquette or a culture that exists in the office that is dominated by white males. And so it's like, hey, if you want to be here, you got to play by our rules a little bit in terms of how we interact together, how we how we talk to each other, the types of things that are there. And then as that translates to we're almost developing a new digital etiquette that's being expected with, with lots of other things that's going to be dominated by other groups that's there. Tell me about that code switching word. What does it take for somebody who's not used to those worlds to get in there, learn the systems? Does it feel inauthentic? All that. Tell me what you're thinking. Yeah. It's so funny to me now because when I reflect back on my career, yeah, code switching was something I feel like virtually everyone I knew who was a person of color, Black person in particular, did. We didn't have a term for it, but there was just kind of an understanding that you're assimilating into an environment that um, does not, for the most part, look like you and may not necessarily reflect your your culture, um, might not even particularly reflect your values. And so um, you know, you're typically, at least, you know, back in the day, you know, for me, when I was in corporate, you know, decades ago, you know, we were, I, there weren't that many black women, not to mention there weren't that many black women in positions of authority. So when you step in and they're talking about, they went, you know, to Helen over the weekend, and I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you just automatically, adjust. And I'm not saying, I'm just defining for you what code switching is. You know, I think it's up to the individual in terms of how much or, um, they want to partake in that. I think I did it to a degree. I think everyone does it to a degree in that, um, you want to be accepted and you feel a pressure. You feel a sense of pressure to adjust your tone of speech, your language, your dress. I mean, just so many things about yourself to not stand out and to be accepted within that environment. Um, I think that we're in an amazing time today where there's pushback on that. People are saying, well, why should we have to assimilate? You know, real diversity means celebrating who you are and your difference and your uniqueness. So I think that it's wonderful and it's great that we're having this conversation and that people are really trying to show up as their authentic selves. Because ultimately, I think that's where we all win. Do you think a digital world makes that harder or easier? Good question. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, being digital, again, one of the big barriers that I see is that it's so much easier for people to fall into the background. And you just don't, you you know, you don't know about them. They're really not a part of the team. I feel like when we're operating digitally, it's, you have to pull people in, you know, you have to, and then it's like, you know, there's this paradox. You don't want to force people to turn their cameras on all the time because that gets exhausting. But at the same time, when you're not seeing people, you know, there's a huge disconnect. So, um, So I don't know. I think in people's personal lives, you know, certainly people are much more themselves and there's less code switching going on because there's that keyboard courage and, you know, it's maybe, you know, in in their personal lives. But I do think that in during those work hours and in work situations, I still do think that that certainly is an issue. And I think that being remote um, can make it more complicated. So here's my thing. You tell me what you think about it. I feel like for people who are digital natives, for people that come from 
they're experienced using digital tools. They're very comfortable with that. I feel like the transition to learning the new culture, learning these types of things, there should be less code switching for people like that because it should even the playing field a little bit more and, and make it easier for you. You don't even have to, as you're interacting with people, it's not obvious that you're different by the color of your skin even. Like obviously a uh, video is there, but for the most of the part of the day, it's not even in somebody's awareness that it's there. But I feel like it's a big jump that's still there from, like you said, the digital haves and have nots. I think for people who kind of were behind the times technologically, aren't as used to using those tools, I think that's going to be an even bigger gap to jump now, which of course disproportionately affects black and brown people as well too. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a huge difference um, between being forced into the digital world and choosing the yeah. digital world and, you know, being forced in it just creates a whole nother level of anxiety. Um, and it creates, just as you, just as you've alluded to, it creates an opportunity for some people to be exposed. I mean, let's be mm-hmm. honest. Um, for some people, the pandemic was their first zoom call, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so we all yeah. didn't necessarily start at the same place. And I'm not in any way suggesting that black people were behind white people necessarily. I'm just talking in general now, you know, in terms yeah, of people sure. that there sometimes were technological differences and, and that can be unsettling and actually brings us back to the first topic about managing up. That was actually some of what I heard about quite a lot was a lot of people were saying to me, my manager's freaking out, my manager's freaking out. Like, you know, <laughs> they're not used to this technology. They're not used to working at, from home as much. And so that's why I said, well, it creates a huge opportunity because now you can show your value. Now you really can step in and help them. Maybe you lead the Zoom calls. Maybe you, you know, kind of coordinate it, you lead it. It's an oppor- It's a win-win. It's an opportunity for you to demonstrate more leadership, probably build a closer relationship with your boss, and at the same time, you know, make a truly meaningful contribution to your team. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> oh, th- thanks. I, that makes me feel good. So, <laughs> let's move to your passion and what should be on all of our minds about anti-racism in the workplace. And specifically, you brought up the term keyboard courage, which you've heard more often than, than not lately. And especially we're, we're dealing with digital places where if we're coming right off the heels of this announcement from Basecamp that says, okay, no more political discussions in the office. Yeah. Because they felt like, hey, it got out of hand, people took it too far, right. types of things. Man, that is a tough issue to deal with and to figure out what's the right call here when it comes to, yeah. we want to be an, or, an organization that is anti-racist. We don't want to stick with the status quo and what everything's been going on. But we also know that maybe the digital workplace does encourage more keyboard courage on, on both sides of issues that are out there. What's your advice on how to handle those types of things? Yeah, the the Basecamp email was really surprising and interesting. Um, I can't speak specifically to their situation because I don't know exactly what happened there. I think, you you know, you could take any situation and have extreme examples. So I don't know, maybe there were some extreme things going on there, but I can say more generally, I think that Certainly, the pendulum has swung towards companies having more social responsibility, um, companies supporting employees much more so from a social justice perspective, and companies encouraging people to truly bring their authentic self 
to work. I'm not saying that they're not, but um, I definitely think that that's where the pendulum has swung. Um, and I think that that's an amazing and wonderful thing. And I think that the companies ultimately that will be most valued by um, staff and employees um, are those companies that really, really that refuse to stick their head in the sand and think that it's, you know, completely binary or two different things like, you know, black person, you know, black people can be getting killed left and right by police, but we're just supposed to show up and be happy and cheerful and pretend like, you know, nothing is going on. So I think that yeah. if nothing else, um, it, the pandemic, as well as the uh, the murder of George Floyd and Amy Cooper and just all these, you know, other incidents that happened that were racially um, motivated. <laughs> have shown us that there really is not this hard bifurcation between who we are at work and then our personal lives, that there really is a good bit of overlap. And yeah. we need to encourage environments where we can come to work and be authentic. If a company says no political discussions at the office, can they still be anti-racist? Or is that is having those discussions part of the process? Yeah, well, I'll kind of answer it a couple different ways. I mean, I don't really know exactly what, you know, political discussions are to me when I think about, <laughs> exactly, yeah. you know, I think that's kind of hard to, you know, get your hand around and that's pretty subjective. Um, it, it almost feels to me like people are saying no discussions about things I don't want to talk about. I mean, that's kind of yeah. what it almost feels like to me. I mean, I don't think anybody would have, you know, there are tons of policy issues or, you know, politicians from, you know, MLK, well, not MLK, um, JFK, it, it certainly would not say not to talk about that. So at any rate, I, I don't know. I almost think that's a bit of a red herring. When I think uh -huh. about anti-racism, to me, that's not the barrier. I think the barrier is keeping it again, 100. Um, it has to be more than a hashtag. It has to be more mm. than jumping on the PR bandwagon. All of these companies mm -hmm. that are claiming anti-racism, they could have done this five years ago, two years ago. I mean, Black Lives Matter didn't just start. So right. they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, just like Colin Kaepernick. Nobody was supporting this. Nobody was putting hashtag Black Lives Matter on LinkedIn, you know, three years ago, five years ago, um, because they considered it extreme and they considered it something that they didn't really want to deal with. But then the public relations winds changed and now everyone's kind of jumped on board now where true anti-racism comes in is it's not just about the hashtag or the likes on social media it's really about rolling up your slaves doing the work and figuring out um where and how is racism impacting your environment and what can you do to dismantle that and i think the problem mm -hmm. in terms of anti-racism is that they don't want to do the work I mean, it's easy yeah. to make a donation or it's easy to put out a statement. It's much harder to roll up our sleeves, look at ourselves in an authentic way and commit to doing some real work. So I just don't think that the true desire is there. And so that's why we have the term performative anti-racism. I think that too often the, the actions are they're performative and they're self-serving because let, let's keep in mind. You know, going along with the PR wins, being on the right side of this, um, even making a donation, there's tons of goodwill to be had from that. There's tons of positive press to be gotten from that. 
So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out once something egregious happens and it's considered, you know, a good PR move to say, yes, we support Black Lives Matter or yes, we're anti-racist that, you know, your communications or PR team goes into overdrive and, you know, spits out a statement and comes up with a hashtag or, or whatever. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's a smart business move. But, but again, anti-racism is, is about the long-term action. And I like your phrase. I mean, you got to get in there and do the work. But again, I feel like a lot of the work we need to do is, is on ourselves. We, we like to think that the work is like, okay, I need to write the check. I need to attend the rally. I need to like go off and do something, volunteer at some place. And then I've done my thing. Yeah. And, that, and all that is great, but that just needs to be the beginning, not the end. And that's the problem yeah, yeah. is when it's, you know, a one and done. Dana, this has been really great. This is some of my favorite topics to talk about. We've covered so many great things, talking about managing up, talking about collaboration, about how we, we connect with each other in a digital place, about how that impacts who we are, bringing our full self to work. So many great topics. If people want to learn more about you and all the great stuff you write about on your new LinkedIn programs coming up, where should they check out? Please follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Dana Brownlee. Uh, and also follow me on Forbes. You know, go to my Forbes page. That's where I, I truly engage and I try to put out good quality content. You don't you succeed in that. It, it's really good stuff. And I've really benefited from it just from learning about you and learning more about it. So thank you for what you're putting out into the world. We look forward to learning more from you in the future. All right. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. This has been the Digital Workplace Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to leave a review wherever you find it. Go to thedigitalworkplace.com and sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. It keeps you up to date on the best ways to build a level 5 digital workplace. Music for the show is provided by City of Sound. I'm your host, Neil Miller. Keep moving forward.